This is Teeming with Ideas, the podcast that explores how people at work work together. I'm Carlos Valdez Depena, your host, and I spent decades working with teams as well as researching, writing, and speaking about collaboration. Over the years, I've met some brilliant people who share my passion for collaboration. In Teeming with Ideas, I'll be speaking with these experts so that you can put them to work to make your work life richer and more rewarding. Enjoy. I'd like you to meet Dean Newland, founder of Mission Facilitators and author of The Business of Intuition. Dean, welcome. Why don't you uh, tell our listeners a bit about yourself, your firm, and how you're doing today? I'm excellent, Carlos. We've got a company that's based in Phoenix, Arizona. We've been around since 1992, so almost like 28 years. And we work with mostly medium to large size businesses locally, nationally, and some internationally. What they hire us to do is around strategic planning, large-scale culture change work, teamwork, the things that you do, leadership development. I think that really what we're focused on right now as I think about the whole pandemic and how the changes are affecting businesses is those organizations who are really wanting to focus on the future and bravely and boldly move into that space. And we want to support them in being able to reach those larger goals. It's not to say that we don't work with organizations who are holding back, but I think we find ourselves very interested in very purpose-centered teams and organizations who, quite frankly, are trying to change their own world and the, and the world at large. It's a lot more fun to be playing with people who are doing some really big stuff, and that's what we like to do. Like you, if the work's not interesting, if I'm not growing, why am I here? <laughs> now, about your podcast, The Business of Intuition, that's a great title. Why did you choose it? I've been always trying to get intuition out of the closet and into the boardroom, so to speak. So that's kind of why I wanted it to be called that. But here's what has been on my mind for a long time. I've noticed in team meetings, board meetings, executive meetings, that there's usually people who speak up a lot and say things because they have facts and information to back up their ideas. We have guiding principles in organizations that say fact-based decision-making. Certainly that makes sense. And certainly in scientific organizations, that makes a lot of sense. But I also noticed that there's a lot of people holding back their ideas, their perspectives, their gut sense, because they've not been able to say, I am basing this idea on a fact. It's just a hunch. What I understand is the higher up you go in an organization, the more important intuition becomes because it makes you a better listener, a better strategic planner, a better problem solver. But we don't necessarily allow the entire rank and file to sort of tap into that intuitive side. When we do, we start seeing more engagement, better ideas, better creativity. So fast forward, I was able to do a TED Talk on that topic of intuition in Bend, Oregon about a year and a half ago. And it was such a fun experience. I thought, I want to keep this conversation going forward. So that's why I decided to do a podcast on that topic. And we've had just about 40 to 50 different guests, you being one of them, all talking about their experience around intuition and business and decision-making and it's just been fascinating. I've learned probably as much as everybody else has. That is so cool. Now, so that we're all working, Dean, from a shared understanding, how do you define intuition? It's hard to define something where the experience does not reside in the part of the brain that brings out language. 
it's really at cross purposes. When you look at the brain structure, intuition does not reside in the language section. So we're left with having to define something without the tools in which to do it. The way you would say, what is intuition? It's a feeling. It's a knowing. Some sort of a little light bulb goes off and goes, I don't know what this means, but it feels right or it sounds right. That kind of inner knowing is what intuition is. And if you can trust it and apply it and your ego isn't running the show, you're not just doing it for your own purposes, but it really feels like something is just sort of landed in you. I've noticed CEOs talk about that process and they make a decision. Yes, well, we will refer to our spreadsheets and our strategic plan and our, you know, all of those other things, bottom line and scorecards. But in the end, these people normally make those big decisions based on gut. Really so interesting. Even with, with all the data and research available on decision-making, studies consistently show that even big decisions are made on intuition or gut or... I really liked your phrase, inner knowing. And the tough thing is, as we know, intuition sort of has this bad rap. It doesn't have anything that we can hold on to. We think it's flaky. We think it's non-business-like. It's non-scientific. It doesn't have any history involved with it. But if we're going to be recreating our world here. If we're going to be kind of charting a new course, as we start to come out of the ashes of this heck of a year... We are, will not go back to the way things were. We are being forced into transformation, whether we like it or not. Businesses are having to transform. And if they're not now, they will be. And therefore, the old style of thinking that was successful in 2019 is not going to be the same sort of thinking that needs to take place in 2021. We need to increase the metabolism of our thinking. And I think intuition is going to play a role in that. I attended a conference a few years back where several speakers posited that artificial intelligence was already capable of taking on basic management processes. Not just things like where people are and their hours worked, but like decision-making. So all that's left to us humans is our intuition. Yeah. So I was talking to another person on a podcast an episode a while back, and I just sort of came into this term, whereas we're sort of in this process with AI where you could almost call it reverse anthropomorphization, meaning that we are now putting technical terms to define human behavior. And we're now expecting people to behave in the same way in which we would want our technology to behave. I mean, for example, you want to send off an email to somebody, our expectation is we're gonna get a response pretty darn quick. And part of that, I think, is we're encouraged by our cell phones and so forth that are so quick in its ability to get an answer back. We're now expecting that same sort of speed with people. That's just one example. And so there's this idea, and you probably have heard of this with the AI stuff that you've been thinking about, is there's this talk about a singularity where human beings and technology sort of become indistinguishable from one another. And if that's the case, is this then the last generation of what it really feels like to be quote unquote human? And if that's the case, is not intuition something that can never be replicated by a technical device? And is this something that we should be holding on to and cherishing as our humanness? <laughs> so that's the stuff that I'm thinking about. Okay, so this is getting uncomfortable. I'm imagining 20 years from now when we consultants will be obsolete. Business leaders will just pull out their AI machines to do the work we once did. Oh, definitely. Yeah, like a Jarvis, you know, you know, everything is sort of taken care of your heart rate and everything else and your emails. And anyway, we digress. Dean, 
You have been in this field for over 30 years. I'm curious, what got you into consulting? It wasn't the route that you would think, let's get an MBA, let's study up on business theory, let's go get an internship, let's work for some large company like Accenture. That was not my path. And in fact, it was anything but. I was an individual as a young lad, as they say, trying to find himself. And I was a writer for a while. And then I got really involved in theater. And I thought theater and acting would, quite frankly, be my profession. Well, hang on. I have an MFA in theater. Did, did, did we discuss that on your podcast? Well, you touched upon it, but we never dug into it because we just didn't have enough time. But I know that we have this connection. I really got an interesting education in acting. And there was a program out of the University of Washington. It was a PATP program called the Professional Actors Training Program. And there was only a handful of those around the country. It just so happened we had a school at the time was sort of ranked number three in the world or the country. And, and I was very, very fortunate to be hanging out with these people for three years in boot camp. Well, so what does that all mean? It means that I got to learn about myself and I got to learn about motivation and what drives people's behavior because it wasn't just a theory. Okay, let's read a book. Let's read Lencioni, whatever. But we had to put on the coat of motivation by acting it out. And we were in the, the Stanislavski you know, perspective around, it has to come from yourself. This was not the British perspective like, well, my dear boy, just put on the coat and act as if you were. No, you actually had to feel your own intuitive and motivational inspiration for putting words out of your mouth and they had to make sense. And so all of a sudden, I got three years of understanding motivation. I got three years of understanding character development and what makes people tick and what are the problems and so forth. And teamwork, my God, having to be on a play and a team for two months, putting it together, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, it's intense and it's dramatic and in the truest sense, but the metaphoric sense. So as a result of that, I learned a ton and I started doing some teaching to be able to make money for all of these expenses. And I was teaching undergraduate students and it was something about the teaching process that scared the crap out of me because I realized that I was more prone to that than I was to the theater. And I didn't want to pay attention to that. So eventually, long story short, I got basically a year long certification in being a coach back in the day when coaching was not even part of our lexicon of business practices. It was still seen as only a reference towards uh, sports. So after I got this certification and went through a lot of training on coaching, I realized theater was gone, but the teaching and the coaching and really the facilitation is what I found myself to be so passionate about. I always wanted to do Romeo and Juliet and say, okay, now that we've done the play, all of you audience members, stay in your seats and let's sit around and talk about it. What did you learn? What did we learn as actors? That's what I always wanted to do. But then they would leave and we would go and, and I thought, oh, big opportunity missed. So that's kind of what started this. And once the coaching practice got off the ground in Seattle back in 92, it just grew. It grew into other things and I learned more and I got more training and so forth. But that was the impetus. And there's still a through line for everything that I do that goes back to those early days. Your description of your acting journey resonates with me so perfectly. Theater tells a story, and each team has a story to tell as well. So I consider it my job to help teams tell their story. But uh, I want to switch gears for a moment and talk leadership. So leadership development, as we understand it, wasn't really discussed until sometime after World War II. The Tavistock Institute, National Training Labs, Deming things like that. And around the 1960s, it really caught fire. What are some of the old nuggets of knowledge from those days that you think are still relevant and important today? Sure. 
mission statements. So I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. I was doing some facilitation with a group of executives with Warehouser many years ago, and uh, it was somewhere on the West Coast. And they, these are the people, the guys and gals that had all of the budget, all the resources that they could possibly want. There was no reason why they couldn't do a new program, a new training, what have you. They had it all. And this was not about mission statements, by the way. This was just about a team development to get the, um, the executive team group to sort of get to know each other better and to build some alignment. At the end of this day, the top guy stood up and he goes, this was really great. I really appreciate this. We did a lot. And he kind of rattled off what we did. But he says, I still don't know what business we're in. And I went, oh, my gosh, if you guys don't know what business you're in, does that then mean other people don't know as well? And so then I started kind of going on this little quest around mission statements because it seemed like it was a mission question that he was asking. What are we really doing here? What is our North Star? Do we have alignment and clarity and buying and commitment towards what our purpose is with respect to this company or this team? And so what I found is that, of course, mission statements have been around for a long time, to your point. Some of these people that we are standing on their shoulders help create some of these things. But what it happens is that I don't think that we do them well, and I don't think that people use them. I think that we are still so short-term focused around this quarter or that quarter and getting our numbers met that we don't ever take the time to ask these questions. And I think there are five questions that make a mission statement really effective. Simple, you know, it's just sort of like your old journalism classes. Who are we? What do we do? For whom do we do it, i.e. our customer? It's amazing how many people don't really know what that is, or they think they know, and other people think it's something else. How do we do it? And then why, which is sort of the why of Simon Sinek's why, the golden triangle why, or circle, I should say. So if we can answer those five questions and we get everybody to come together and really understand what those five questions mean, and eventually, through some facilitation, like people like yourself and me, hopefully, or, or maybe it's internal, and they can really get in that clarity, then strategic planning becomes much more effective because we're not trying to do a strategy or a goal without having those foundational questions answered. I often get into planning sessions and find out, wait a minute, this is not really a strategic planning session. We're also into a mission creation session. They haven't even answered these basic questions here. So that's the thing that I keep finding is that we don't do that well. And so what I try to do is find a way to simplify it, but also make the experience something that don't make people feel like they're going to the dentist to get a root canal, <laughs> that it's an engaging, useful process. And I think that if we can use the mission statement as a foundational hub of our planning, and we refer to it on a regular basis, not just once, and then we're done and it gets dusty and we put it into an annual report. Now, this is a real living document that helps guide our decisions and guide our planning. Then I think we have alignment, we have effectiveness, we have productivity, it answers all those basic questions. While I work with senior teams, my greatest satisfaction comes from working with teams a couple of levels below the top, where they're trying to make sense of what the heck they're supposed to be doing to create value for their business. How do you feel about teams having mission statements? Absolutely. Well, if you go by the premise that the mission statement is um, answers some bedrock questions, you know, like who are we, what do we do, for example. Well, let's just take that first one. Who are we? And then what do we do? That's just the two, right? Well, if I'm in marketing, who we are and what we do is different than what the research and development people do. 
right? So we can have subsets. It's sort of like, you know, the, the town you live in is a community and it has a focus and a purpose, hopefully. But it, hopefully it, it aligns to and connects to and supports the state and the state connects and aligns to you know, theoretically to the, to the country. So the same premises, the same ideas, the same clarity, the same engagement, the same uh, focus is needed on the local level as it is on the larger level. In fact, maybe one could even say more so because they're the ones who actually have to implement the vision. They're the go-between, right? <laughs> We're taking the CEO's uh, ideas and translating them into reality. We're the alchemists who have to make all these ideas work. So we have to get real clear about what do we do? How do we do it? You know, and all of those basic tenets that make a good mission statement good. And what about vision statements, Dean? Because many people conflate the two concepts, mission and vision. I see them as different in uh, important ways. So I'm curious. Why did you choose to discuss mission statements and not vision statements? Well, I just think that the mission is getting a little bit closer to operationalizing the vision, right? In my mind, and again, we all have to, it's almost like you come into a, a community and you have to sort of know what the, the language is. You know, how do we then communicate with each other? And since we use words like vision and mission and values and so ubiquitously, it's like, okay, hold the phone. Let's just don't assume that we know what you're talking about, right? So for vision, I think vision is a battle cry. I don't mean to use necessarily a violent term, like something to do with war, but it is the thing that says, it's, this will probably take two or three lifetimes for us to ever achieve. It focuses our attention. It makes us realize that this is really what we're about. For example, um, at one point, I think the, the, the vision for Microsoft, if I may remember correctly, was to have a, a desktop computer on everybody's desk. You know, Coca-Cola was to have a Coca-Cola within arm's reach of every human being on the planet. Well, like for one of our clients, Goodwill of Central and Northern Arizona down in the Arizona area, their vision is to end unemployment. Now, is that possible? Heck no. That's not going to be something that they can do. They're going to have to collaborate with a lot of other nonprofits and government agencies and will probably take lifetimes for it to achieve. And even then, it seems a little bit ridiculous to think that that could actually happen. But it focuses people's attention. We are all about putting people to work, right? So that clarity really gets that. So that to me is a vision. The mission starts bringing it into a little bit more um, clarity around things that have to do with how do we then implement it, given today's environment, whatever that might be, the economics, whatever. So that's my, my distinction between vision and mission. So if a team is mid to upper level, say a functional group, should that team have a, a vision statement too? I think it can because it just adds clarity again on a more aspirational level. Again, if it is useful for the organization to have a vision, why wouldn't it be useful for a team, you know, two or three steps down from the senior team. I don't see why that couldn't be valuable. Um, it's also a way of branding. I don't mean like, you know, let's all go wear t-shirts and have our vision statement, although there are teams that have done that, but it does, it, it serves the same purpose. It says basically it is sort of the accentuation of why are we doing what we're doing? You know, it's that five, that fifth question in the five that I was stating. It's it's the why. It's like, what's this all about? And then if you can align the individual, if you can align the individual to that, like, what's my why? What am I about? What am I supposed to be doing? What's my purpose? Can I can I find that? And do I get a chance to express that in this team and in this company? Well, then now we've got almost like an electrical current. 
a flow between individual team and organization and community. And then back again, that's where things get really exciting. So your favorite old idea is mission statements. What newish idea is inspiring you today? Yeah, there's what I'll say, probably like you, Carlos, there's never a want for new ideas that are interesting because that's part of the the world in which we live. But I think the one that is now I'm, I'm noodling on and playing with more and more is really neuroscience. You know, the neuroscience of influence. And, and I, again, I'm not a doctor. I don't understand it to the degree that many, many do. But the stuff that I'm reading is fascinating. And there's stuff that came out, I guess, in 2008, you know, this model that you probably have heard of called SCARF. And it's basically, it's a way to be able to help us understand the way the brain perceives information. And it, as I understand it, it gets down to the unconscious brain either sees a threat or a benefit. That's it. <laughs> you know, it doesn't care about your goals. It doesn't care what you look like going to a dinner. It just wants to know, is this a benefit that I should be moving forward with toward, you know, in alignment and, 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 and partnership? Or is this something that is a threat, a foe, friend or foe, that I should be pushing my way away from and getting away from? And so that has been fascinating to me because it's starting to get people, executives in particular, to realize they have to be cognizant of how they communicate in such a way that hopefully won't trigger that threat response. You know, is it about fairness? Is, is it about relatedness, is it about autonomy? Those is, that's the acronym around SCARF. So that to me is what I'm finding currently kind of interesting. And I just presented this idea off to some, an executive team yesterday and they really took to it as they are going through sort of the beginnings of thinking about a post-COVID world, they know that they have to realize that we've been in a threat mindset for a long time. And that even scientifically speaking, as, as I read up on this, that the brain, even in good days, still perceives a individual or a situation as a threat five times more than a benefit. So we're already predisposed to see the negative in situations. You know, we're sort of hardwired that way because our, the prime directive of the brain, the subconscious brain is safety. You know, that's that reptilian brain that says, okay, you know, I'm in a cave. I've got to be careful of those saber-toothed tigers out there. So everything is like caution. You know, that's how we're made to, to think. So anyway, that's what I've been curious about and playing around with uh, of late. You know, talk to you next week. There may be something new, but that's the one that's on top of my mind. So is there a, a favorite article you have on that topic? Yeah, there's one in 2008, uh, David Rock. It was in the uh, Journal of Neuro Leadership Institute. It was talking about the neuroscience of influence, and it talks about the SCARF model. It's not a long article. It doesn't take a PhD to understand it, but, but that's a really good one, a basic one. Is there a practical concept from the neurology of leadership space that a director level, yeah. even a manager level team leader could use with their teams tomorrow? Yeah, uh, that's a good point. So if you take a look at the idea that we want certainty, that the SCARF, right? If we really want certainty, that's one of the things that the brain is sort of seeking to have that, um, that stasis. Um, organizations and teams, whether however, how you are, if you, if you don't give people regular updates and what's going on, you know, like, you know, this particular organization is a healthcare organization I was working with, and they have regular updates around what's going on with COVID and the vaccines and so forth. That has made a huge difference in the culture of that organization, because at least they're taking care of the people's need for certainty, you know, being able to understand what's going on. I may not like it, I may be afraid of it, but at least I know. The brain creates, as you know, all sorts of wonderful stories when we don't know. And usually those stories 
are compounded because of the fact that it could be wrong. And so it could be worse than we actually think, right? So if we give people that clarity, you know, of information on a regular basis, and we don't withhold that, I think that's important. I think that, you know, the word transparency is another one of those words we use a lot, but I'm of the mind is, you know, pushing the boundaries around transparency, you know, even more so than what we think. Um, I know that there are human resource laws around, you know, we can't tell you why that person was fired because of why, 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 you know, I understand that. But to the degree that you can, the more transparent you are, you also then start evoking, um, you know, vulnerability, because some of the things you're being transparent about may not necessarily be in your favor. And when you open up yourself to vulnerability, one of the words that I know you love is that people begin to trust you, right? <laughs> and be like, oh, wait a minute, we're not that far apart. You actually are fallible just like I am. So going back to the SCARF model, going back to neuroscience, going back to something that a team could do is one of the things is, is lean on the, on, the, on the side, especially now with this sort of VUCA world that we're in to be transparent and give people regular updates on what's going on. And the problem why we don't do it is just we're running so fast. We're just trying to put out fires and we're in, we're, we're in crisis mode and we forget people don't know what you know and they want to know it. That acronym VUCA, V-U-C-A stands for? Came from the military actually a while back. Uh, volatility, uncertainty, complexity and ambiguity. But basically it describes a world in the military terms where all bets are off. If you watch some of these old movies about wars that were fought two, three, four hundred years ago, it's pretty certain about how your troops would move and how they would move, right? Now it's just like guerrilla warfare and, and you can't uh, basically uh, be certain of anything. And, and that term became very popular in business because the world is, is in a, such an uncertain time of transformation that uh, we have to adapt different ways of adjusting to that world. So I think that's where it got popularized. Okay, if all goes well, we are looking at herd immunity from COVID-19 sometime late 2021. Hmm. What does your intuition tell you about the future of how work will look? <laughs> I mean, look in the crystal ball. <laughs> it's hard to answer that because there's a desire for something and then there's maybe what really will happen. I have a desire to travel again. I have a desire for all sorts of things, going to restaurants as like all we do. I have a desire to see my mom after a year, you know? Um, all those are strong desires, but what, what, what do I sense may happen? Um, I don't really know, but what I wonder about, somebody once said that after we have this COVID thing under wraps, it's gonna be sort of like the roaring 20s, where we're just gonna go out and party and drink and fornicate and have fun and travel. And it's just gonna be an all out Mardi Gras, you know? So that's the extreme of one person's idea, right? I think there's a possibility for that, certainly. Um, but um, I also don't want to underestimate the downstream effects of the year of depression and loneliness and fear. There was a guy that I talked to recently. Um, he said, Dean, I don't even know how I'm thinking right now. I don't even know where I'm at. And I said, when we got back from you know, Vietnam, nobody knew of that type of stress and what it meant. And later we called it PTSD. At some point, we will have a phrase for this kind of stress. We will call it something. 
you will write a book about it or somebody else will write a book about it. It will become a process. Right now, we don't even have that. And I think we will have that. And I think there will be different types of ways to, to treat people and to behave with people in a way that is um, a representative of this sort of subterranean long-term stress that we've been going under. Um, I also get sort of, you know, concerned that we've lost our edge, like the quote unquote, you know, may call it the American way or the spirit, whatever it is, but it's that, that entrepreneurial risk-taking, bold thinking part of our national identity, you know, and that a lot of companies feel that they have. I want to make sure that, I think that that's a possibility that that could take a while to retrieve. Um, because we're still, when's the other foot going to drop? You know, is there going to be another pandemic that will come up? So are we going to play it cautious, cautiously, or are we going to boldly go where no person has gone before quoting Star Trek and then adjust as needed? My point of view is let's boldly plan. Let's don't be, um, putting our heads in the sand of what's going on. Let's be very, very, aware of, of what's needed now, but let's continue to plan. Let's continue to move forward because that's how we get our economies back, how we get our mental health back, how we get our lives back. Thank you so much for being here, Dean, and sharing some fascinating and useful insights. Well, it's really a pleasure, Carlos, to meet you. You're just a kindred spirit, and I so appreciate your your the work that you do and all the stuff you've written about. I feel like uh, you know, we're distant brothers from a different mother. You know, it just, it's, it's nice to chat with you. When all this is over, I truly, truly look forward to sitting down to coffee with you, meeting face to face. <laughs> Let's do. And to my brilliant listeners, thank you. Hi, I'm Janet Aldrich, producer and director of Teaming with Ideas. Thanks for listening. And thank you, John Wallerick, for the music. If you found this podcast useful, please subscribe, review, and share. Want more? Visit Carlos's blog, Teeming with Ideas, at carlosvdapena.com. Questions? Click on the Contact Carlos button, and we'll answer promptly. To be interviewed on the Teeming with Ideas podcast, visit carlosvdapena.com forward slash podcast dash contact and complete the questionnaire. Thanks again for listening, and keep on teeming with ideas. <laughs>